What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. And as always, each episode is brought to you by All I Need Skateboarding. Uh, you can check out everything we got going on, skateboards, apparel, and skateboard content at allineedskate.com. And the uh, cool thing is, if you purchase anything from All I Need, whether it be one of our decks at your local skate shop, or if you don't live near a skate shop and you cop one from online, uh, a portion of that goes back into funding this podcast, which is cool, man. And I appreciate the support. Helps keep the show um, uncensored and uh, listener-funded. Which I think is a rare but awesome thing to have in skateboarding. Uh, our guest today is the legendary Simon Woodstock. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. I just love the skating and the scene. Rain, rain, go away. All I need is a skateboard today. Board today. Board today. This is the Shetler Show featuring professional skateboarder, podcaster, and All I Need Skate founder, Anthony Shetler. So everyone was, it was hot. Everyone was doing it. Yeah, they're looking for their dad's fucking metal skateboards in the garage. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Get on this thing. <laughs> Each episode brings you amazing discussions with interesting people from all walks of life. Kind of when skateboarding clicked for me and you learn some tricks or whatever and you get that appreciation from your peers, you know, the other skaters are like, holy shit, like, yeah, dude, that's rad. Admiration. Yeah, yeah the admiration or the, the affirmation. Real. Recognize real. If I didn't experience those crazy moments in my life, then these great moments would never be as great as they have been. Honestly, like for me, I just loved it. Like I saw those dudes, I saw those videos, and I was like, holy fuck, this is sick. Yeah. This is what I want to do. Um, yeah, I guess we've never met before. That's funny. We started this out with you saying that you thought I was another person. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were this guy I used to skate with like 20 years ago. Sick. Did he, <laughs> did he shred? Yeah, the Sarah, so it was these, these guys, the Sarah brothers, they, they were, S-E-R-R-A was their last name, and they were twins, Anthony and Shelter. Nice. I'm pretty sure. So that's what, because that's your name, it's Anthony Shelter, right? Well, it's pronounced Shetler, but it gets mixed okay. up with Shelter because of autocorrect. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, I thought you were, yeah, but they, they used to rip. They were just these amateur guys, but they would go around everywhere, and you would see them ripping. That's sick. Well, it, it's kind of strange because we've never met, but I feel like I kind of know you just from watching your skateboarding growing up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, we'll go into all that, but it's just, like, strange how skateboarding's like that when, um... People end up putting themselves out there and expressing themselves and getting in magazines and videos. And we like, because I grew up in the winters of uh, Massachusetts and we couldn't really skate in the winter as much as we wanted. So we'd be watching the old four and one videos and all the magazines and just consuming the content that people were creating while we were like about to shovel a driveway out to skate, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I watched a lot of your skating growing up. So it's nice to meet you and, and get to talk to you. So thank you. Yeah, no worries, man. I, I guess if I saw Neil Peart from Rush, I would feel the same way. <laughs> Hell yeah. There's very <laughs> there's very few celebrities like that I'd really care. I'm, I'm more excited about meeting skateboarders, which is funny. 
but Rush was pretty sick. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start it off at the top, Simon. Um, how did you get your first board? Um, I was at a Goodwill store. I was like super young. I was like five years old, and uh, the the I mean, Goodwill wasn't even like a good store back then. You know, it it was it was almost like a converted warehouse that barely had any like attention put into it and they just had this like pile of just imagine like an old wooden tennis racket or two or three and then a pair of skis like old looking like cross-country skis and like it's maybe like a water ski in there too and (laughs) there was just this little like um it was it was sort of like one of those roller derby boards but it was not that brand and i i just picked it up so my aunt and my mom were taking me out shopping with them and i I started kneeboarding around in the store and I, I think they were kind of concerned that I was cruising around the store, but then they were like, oh, he seems to like this. So they just bought it for me just to keep me from riding it in the store and then they let me take it home. So what was, it wasn't like a, a normal shaped skateboard. It was an odd shaped type of skateboard. It kind of had a weird shape to it. So it, it wasn't one of, it was, it was very similar to those red roller derby ones with the metal wheels, but it did have kind of a funky shape. Like, the uh, I think the front was wider than the back or something, but it, it was a it was a legit skateboard though for the the time. I mean, this we're talking 1975. Wow. So so it was like it it was maybe just slightly outdated. I mean, you, we boards were maybe going uh, from ball bearing wheels. I don't even know if people were using like precision bearings yet. You know. Yeah. That's so, so it was just some slightly outdated board. Yeah. That's some early, like, formative years when they were just transitioning. Because nowadays, it's all, like, uh, popsicle shapes. I mean, they, they kind of had the resurgence of, like, shape boards and stuff for a while there. Now now it's a little bit of everything, you know, I guess. No, you guys got it good. Like, any any board, you got to imagine that in the, in the 90s, I still rode 62-millimeter wheels, and you couldn't find them. I had to, on tour, I had to look in everybody's, like, used miscellaneous bins at the skate shops. Because uh, they would have old OJs and stuff in there, you couldn't get the stuff. Every every wheel shrunk down to these little bearing covers that were thirty nine millimeters. Yeah, it got a little strange so, there too. <laughs> yeah, you guys got it good now. You have everything. You just go get anything you want. Yeah, it's kind of democratized. It's nice. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, what'd your parents think about the skateboarding? Like when you started getting into it and doing uh beyond just pushing around on your knees, like standing up, and when it got a little dangerous, maybe. Uh, they were cool with it. There was a, uh, my mom did kind of trip out, but there was like a sort of some bartering that went down. Uh, my dad, my dad was into motorcycles. My dad still like works on British bikes and stuff. Sick. So my dad had got me this little like 50cc dirt bike, almost like a four stroke kind of enduro kind of thing, but it was a dirt bike. And, uh, I was riding that a lot too in this backfield behind my house. And I was getting pretty good at it. I could control it and cruise it around. I, we're talking. I'm maybe like 12 years older this time. Nice. And, uh, and my mom was just like, not, my mom doesn't like motorcycles. And I, I wanted to get into motocross. I had friends up the street that had these Honda, like two stroke, you know, 125s and stuff. And I, I wanted to get into it. And my dad was all about it. But then my mom was like, no, no, no. She, she threw a big fit. And I, I was, I was kind of bummed out, but I just always had a little bartering side to me. And I was just like, okay, I'll make you deal, mom. Uh, I'll, uh, that's going to probably sound terrible, but I was like, okay, I won't ever ride another motorcycle, but you therefore have to buy me just 
as many skateboards as I want for the rest of my life. And she was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so I, I kind of worked her over. That's a hell of a deal, Simon. <laughs> yeah, and she made good to it, you know, like uh, pretty crazy. So, um, yeah. and, and I could do it. That's something I could do with it. I thought skateboarding was cool. And I'm probably glad that, you know, because you can't wreck yourself, uh, whether you're, you're dirt bike racing or jumping. So it probably worked out better for me. Yeah, and she had no idea how long you'd stick with it and how many boards that might cost. <laughs> yeah, true that. <laughs> That's sick. Um, I, I kind of wanted to keep going backwards, if you don't mind. Um, That's right. Your parent, what do your parents do? Well, my dad, they're retired now, so my, my dad was like an expert uh, machinist. So he, he liked machine parts. He, he just, his last job, he worked at this company called A-Optics which was uh, a tech company founded by uh, some astronomers. And they were, uh, they, for a while they had some su government subsidized contracts. They were developing iris recognition technology, you know, sort of like thumbprinting, but you, you know, like you see it on science fiction movies where they check the eye to get you access. That's actually a technology that's being developed. And so my dad worked in their machine shop to help uh, the engineers. The engineers come up with the, uh, these ideas and things they need. My dad make, would make them a reality and machine the parts. My dad has worked, he worked for this company called Aerojet. He's worked, he had made some prototype parts for spaceships and things like that. So that's what he did for years, but he just finally retired a couple of years ago. Wow, that's pretty wild. Yeah, and that technology you're talking about, they're starting to use that now, right? Like the new iPhone, I think, whatever, like an iPhone 1 million, it has the face recognition now, right? Yeah. So it's getting closer to like eye recognition and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it because my my dad was more on the the machining side of helping those guys just get what they needed as far as parts. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean they're trying to advance it. And what what about your mom? You said she's just always been a housewife. She uh she had like uh interest in like real estate and stuff, but uh, she just was a housewife. My dad in in that industry always uh made pretty good money, so he could buy houses and support us and stuff like that. Yeah, that's awesome. And house house moms are important. They got to raise little Simon Woodstocks, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. And she, she's been an awesome mom. They're both, they're both still alive. They're retired. Well, my dad retired. They're up in NorCal. So I guess how I want to keep going is uh, how did you – where did you realize you were a character? Or maybe at what age did you realize that you, you could – be a character or have character, I guess. But you like to entertain, so I kind of wanted to go that way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just sort of kind of happened naturally, I guess. I, I never fit in super great with the in crowd at, at school and stuff. Um, and I just, people would try to encourage me academically, but it, early on, um, it, it just didn't sit. And so I would just gravitate towards these, like, trippy people in my neighborhood, you know, like anybody that do how to catch lizards or, or whatever, you know, I would just, I would just hang out with these trippy folks in the neighborhood and I, I just felt uh, drawn more to that than these mainstream people that would be at these schools and stuff. And, uh, so my junior high, there was these skaters, you know, and so I, I would, uh, um, I, I, I think I was the only skateboarder at my, at my elementary school, believe wow. it or not. Wow, that's crazy. Where 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 is this at this time? It was in Campbell, California. So, uh, there, Campbell, California is on the map for 
three reasons actually, but two of them are probably notable. Um, so Lars Friedrichsen from Rancid, uh, his his name as a as a youth was Lars DePello. So the DePellos lived right across the street from my uh, elementary school, and Lars is like two years younger than me, and he used to skate. What? Um, and then. He had a friend, Ben Zanotto, who, who's in some of those Rancid songs, but that guy died from a heroin overdose like years later, but they would ride the bus around Campbell and stuff. So if you listen to those Rancid lyrics, it's about Campbell taking the 60 bus down to downtown Campbell. Ben Zanotto was on there. He was waiting for me. It's all around that area. So. When I first started to cut you off, keep your spot, but when I first started skating, we listened to like Rancid, No Effects, Bad Religion, that stuff, that time. Yeah, and I mean, we could talk for a minute about Lars. Lars, Lars was like, he was uh he was funny he would he would try uh so he, he was so so these we, we hung out on the street so he's talking about shaman palms and things like that that's the street that he grew up on and it, it's sort of this low income almost like subsidized apartment type area I, I lived in an upper middle class area like like 10 blocks away but we all hung out together and uh there were these punk rock, rock guys that were just like le- legit punk rock like from birth that lived on our street um like so, not not pop punk. These these guys were just straight up. They just had mohawks when jocks would just beat you up for that. Yeah. And 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 I, I like those guys, and they would skate too. So I would hang out with these guys up the street. Were they and, sorry to cut you off? Were they poor and angry? Kind of, yeah. Like uh, they had just gotten kicked out of high school for having mohawks and stuff. And uh, one guy he had this band called the Drab, and then like the Faction, which is still kind of around again. They they were big at the time. And they were just in these bands like GBH, Cron Jan, and all this stuff. I, I was not, I was more into metal. Like, I like Iron Maiden and stuff, but I thought these guys were cool. And we, we, we were all sort of, you know, looking for our identity. These guys were just straight up real deal punk rock. And then Lars was funny. He would have a new identity like every four months. So he would show up and he would be a break dancer. Like, not, not a good break dancer, but he would have like the parachute pants. He's like this, I think he's Polish. So he's, he's, he's got like these parachute pants and some kind of Michael Jackson knockoff shirt and a, and a, and a boom box. And he would, he would be speaking the lingo. And then, uh, he would show up maybe like a skateboarder for four months. Uh, and then one time he showed up in a suit suit. I don't know how he got it. Like his mom must have, he must have talked his mom into ordering it online or not online, like on a mail order or something. So he had the, the brim and the zoot suit and a gold pocket watch. <laughs> and he's speaking like with this Spanish accent. <laughs> and then, um, this other guy, Sean Gregonis gave him a guitar and I sold him this Les Paul guitar I had. And then the rest was history. Next thing I know, he's Lars Friedrichsen and he's, he's with the op Ivy guys and he's heading up rants. Like I was like, what the heck? <laughs> insane. insane. <laughs> yeah. Was he, was he, uh, easy to be around? Cause he's switching characters. Was he, was it in like humor or was he a little crazy too? He was, he, he was cool, man. He was a, a really cool guy and he, he was just like all the rest of us trying to figure out an identity or something. So it, it was, it's just humorous looking back. I mean, I, I could list a bunch of stupid stuff I did, you know, like, so it, it's harder now because he's like, the last couple of times I saw him, it was like, you know, he had gotten a, a higher status than I ever got. So, you know, I'd say like two words to him and then that would be about it. So whatever yeah. that is what it is, but it, it was, it was funny when he was a kid. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I knew some friends like that. They're just, um, trying out a lot of identities and they were harmless and good people too, but definitely all of the map. And I always enjoyed it. They were killing it. <laughs> how did, how did, um, so did you go the normal route of like sponsorship and did you make sponsor me tapes? Was there a time like 
I know like your skating really kind of took off when you were able to, you started, you caught on to like whatever people wanted to pay attention to. It seemed like they wanted to see something interesting that was out of the norm, you know? Did you ever, did you start just like uh, trying to get, build a sponsor me tape and ride for someone? Well, yeah, I used to, I used to just edit these movies together with two VCRs and they weren't always skateboarding too. I'd make like weird books, uh, weird movies about like uh, my bike or my friend's shoes or something. Like I'd make these movies and then I would, I would mail them out. Um, and I'd made, uh, well, I mean, it, well, my family actually owned a skate shop for a period of time. So my mom did make really good <laughs> on that. We, we had a small, like mom and pop style skate shop. What was the name? And, What's that? What was the name of the shop? Yeah, it was called Winchester Skate Shop. Nice. Yeah, and it, it was cool, man. It was pretty successful. We were open for like three years. It probably could have kept going, but I wanted to go around and get more into skating abroad, and my parents weren't into running the store on their own, so we, we closed it down. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I had a, I had access to all these VCRs and just time, and I had some kind of VHS camera, you know, and uh, just figured out how to edit tapes and put just dub in some, some like mono track music <laughs> and so we make these crazy uh, videos so through the skate shop so that was really my first sponsor and then like like guys would come by you know like, like this one guy from this truck company called motobuilt you know he would come by he'd give you stuff but it wasn't like a sponsor thing you give get shop guys stuff so they would buy the product or something you know so I got a couple boards from that guy and some trucks. I didn't really care for the trucks that much. They didn't turn that well and they broke pretty easy. Um, and then, let's see. And then Alan Losey gave me some boards. Um, and I was I was street skating. and there, there weren't really any street skaters at the time either. This was still when, like, the San Jose warehouse was there with the vert ramp and stuff. And the, most of the guys rode for Santa Cruz and they all skated vert. And... Um, Santa Cruz wasn't really supportive of our skate shop. They actually didn't sell to us because we were in the same town as Sessions. And they were all about Sessions and Joel Gomez, which, you know, whatever. It's it's funny to think about now, but back then it was kind of annoying. So it, not only did uh, um, not only did I get, you know, Santa Cruz boards, but there was no way I could, like, you know, try to ride for them either. They, they just kind of default didn't like me. But what was crazy, though, is all the riders would, <laughs> would go over and get boxes of boards and then they lived in San Jose so they would stop by the shop and just sell me the boxes of boards for like you know 40 or 50 bucks you made it uh, somehow <laughs> get, a, get a few decks and a bunch of rip grip and stickers and stuff you know get 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 three hundred dollars with a retail product for like 40 bucks because they just wanted to buy beers or whatever <laughs> uh, so, so I, was, I was dominating the black market but that wasn't helping my, my career out um and oh so yeah so Lucy was flowing me some boards but that didn't go anywhere and then um I, I filmed, uh, a lot of people don't know this, it's been so long ago, nobody cares probably, but I actually filmed for one of the early 8th Street videos. Like, I, I filmed with, with Mike uh, Tur Turansky, and I, I thought it was, he said it was going to go in the video, and then he had talked about floating me some boards, but that just wasn't the fit. That, that, for lack of a better term, you know, Matt Hensley was the most punk rock guy, and he was sort of like a ska jock, and the rest of the guys were jocks. So it just it just wasn't the right fit. Um, Ron Allen was cool, you know, but uh, I was more of a just slash dog kind of. So it uh, didn't fit, and then I, I wound up uh, writing for Black Label. I wound up connecting with Lucero through Grosso, 
and and then they, I started getting boards, and then I wrote for Black Label for a while. Yeah, that seems like a good fit for you. It was, yeah, it was a, a really good fit at the time, and I was really excited. It was like, a, I mean, I, I think it's still considered to be a cool company. Back then, it was like pretty cutting edge, and uh, Lucero was still pretty known as as being a skater. He was sort of in semi retirement coming right out of his career. So yeah, it was kind of a big deal and I was excited about it. Were you um were you always an outgoing child, like in school and stuff? Were you a jokester or a prankster? Did you do anything in school like that? Kinda yeah, I, I kinda the class clown thing was sort of my niche. But, you know, it wasn't like a good thing. I, I just that's how I navigated school is just make make people laugh so you just get through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, humor has its benefits. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, I didn't like school either. I like I finished high school just because I was like, I'm just going to prove it to myself that I can actually do it because all it was a matter of was like just barely doing the work and getting there, you know? So yeah. I was like, I can at least reach that standard for myself, you know, just so I can finish high school and don't have to go back. And then after that, I was just skateboarding. I like pursued skateboarding full-heartedly and into yeah. that. Did you have a moment where you hit it where you're just like, this is something I'm fully going to work at? Yeah, uh, let's see. So I went, I went always go in phases. And then I think junior high, I went to a junior high in, in Campbell. And nobody really knew that much about skateboarding. So we were like skating on campus. We, we were skating like, you know, behind the auxiliary, behind the gym or whatever, you know. And they, they were just, just, uh, kind of, they didn't know what was going on, you know, so, um, I think after a while they found out about it because there were so many of us over there. There were like eight of us or, or more, you know, jumping off things and, and somewhat destroying property. So they might have put the kibosh on it eventually, but I just rode with these guys and we had cool boards. You know, I had like, I'm trying to remember what kind of board I had. I think I had a Sims like Lester Kasai and like with some Indies or something and some Bones Cubics. We had, we all had boards like that, you know, like, Billy Ruff GNS and so these fishtail boards, but they they were pre double kick, but they were still good enough, you know, where you can you could ride them and really maneuver them and stuff. So we all had boards like that. Um, and we'd just be ollieing around and trying different things, bloodless ones and stuff. Did it ever? Did it ever? Like as you move forward, and did you do you remember like the first paycheck you received from skating? It was from Shorties, and it was for fifty bucks. <laughs> nice. What was it fifty bucks for? <laughs> I just I did an ad and it was it was as an amateur and that guy uh, if I remember his name's Tony Beulis and he 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 used to own this company called Small Room which really had a lot of potential it was out of uh, Central California and he stopped doing that I think for just business reasons he, and then he started Shorties which was actually just mounting hardware at first so he was coming up a bit and so I did an ad I think Tobin Yellen shot it or something and I didn't think anything of it. I would have just shot an ad for whatever reason, but yeah, he sent me a check for like 50 bucks. So I'm pretty sure that's the first check I ever got. Nice. That's probably a good feeling. Like you, cause like for most of your skating, you would just work hard at it because it's fun and everything. And then like for some people, like the pressure of having to get a job and stuff kind of robs them of card and get a check from skating. is probably a good feeling. Yeah, it was cool. You know, and we were all, by this time, you know, we were being intentional. I mean, we we were amateurs and we were trying to make it to the next level. So I knew what was going on at that time. Yeah. How did you, so how did you stumble upon like doing all that, the, all the skits and all the boards and all the experimenting you were doing? What gave you the idea or 
Where, did you see traction somewhere and you just followed it? Yeah, I, I, I remember it pretty well. So I was there was a pretty good amateur circuit at the time. And it was really cool. I mean, if, if you uh, – I might even have them somewhere. I don't know exactly where I would have it. But, you, you have it, so there was this thing called the – wait, uh, so there's Castle, which is still around. Um, and they had a – they later had a version called the PSL, which was a pro version of the amateur contest. But so – and it was like – I mean, you name it from that era, like, um, you know, Cardiel, um and there were these contests at Murphy Canyon, and anybody you can think of would enter these. So I'm talking like Guy Mariano, um, all, all the, the girl riders. I was just smiling because you said Cardiel, and then you went on, and I was like, Cardiel pretty much summed it up for me. I was like, that's the height of epicness. <laughs> yeah, well, there was kind of two. So, so I lived in NorCal, and so it was more for a while, and then it was a – so it would be Car- Cardiel, Coco Santiago, yeah. um, uh, Jeff Toland. JJ Rogers, like 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 these guys. JJ went pro a little sooner than the rest of us, but it was like those kind of dudes. And then, uh, but then I lived in Southern California for a while, so then it was like it, it was it was Guy Mariano, Day One Song, and all these guys would go to these castle contests. So I would enter them regionally in in California, Northern and Southern California, and I could do pretty well. And I'd actually it wasn't a castle contest, but I actually won a, a regional amateur contest in San Jose one time, and. Uh, I thought, okay, well, it seems like the natural progression would be like, yeah, I get to go pro or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm getting in the top ten. I even won a contest. And I, I would send things to companies, and I would just get calls back or letters back saying, no, we're not interested. No, you're not what we're looking for. And I was like, what? This is stupid. And uh, so there was, there was just like one uh, contest in particular. It was at the Powell Skate Zone in Santa Barbara. And uh, I was just wearing these, like, these sort of, like, baggy, like, pre-Genco, like, drawers brand, like, light red, like, raver pants. And, and I had, like, a big chain, like, chain wallet. And I and I dyed my hair, like, rose red. And, and I dyed my beard. And then I had a carpet on my board instead of, like, grip tape. And I just, I just showed up at the contest. And then I just noticed, like, all the photographers wanted to talk to me. And then they wanted to take my picture before I even skated, really. And then, and then, uh, so I went and I skated in the contest and, and the carpet was a bit of a setback, but it didn't hurt me that much. So I wanted to be in like ninth place. Yeah, I want a carpet um, board. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I was at a, I think I'd already like turned pro by that point, but it still was, was, wasn't really happening. So it was this big contest, like Tony Hawk and Omar Hassan and everybody at this Powell thing. And I wound up getting just as many, uh, you know, interview blurbs and photos as any of the other guys. And I even only got ninth in the contest. I think Hawk or Omar Hassan won. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'll just keep doing this. <laughs> it's kind of that simple. What made you pick that attire for that day? Uh, we were we were hanging out at this store called Ghostgate, and the guy that operated that store, he was a, he was a cool guy, but he was one of those guys that was more into making a buck. Like if it was surfboards, he would sell them. If it was snowboards, he would sell them skateboards and so like the the raver clothes were becoming popular so we would just uh trade stuff in or or get those clothes he was into buying those like sort of jenko pre-jenko kind of baggy stuff so we would just get them and i knew that everyone thought they were kind of stupid and trendy but i was like whatever i just wore them anyway just to take people off or whatever (laughs) i fucking love that's what makes you a skateboarder i think (laughs) that attitude right there (laughs) 
Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, okay, let me just make sure I got some of this covered. So we talked about your parents. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I guess the character part, like, what made you, like, some people aren't even aware that they could have character, that they are a character. Some people are so caught up in their emotions of life that they're not even aware of their actions. Like, what gave you that uh, sense of self-awareness? I, I, I was pretty intentional, man. Like, like I, I knew I knew what was going on. So, um, you know, looking back, I, I, I could have gotten away with, like, you name it. Like, I, I, had I been a little bit smarter, I could have just pulled an Andy Kaufman on everybody. Like, <laughs> like but it, it just, like, I was just kind of, I had a little bit of street smarts, but I wasn't the smartest guy. So, you know, I was just out there just doing crazy junk. But I, I could have. I could have pulled, I could have just had the Stockholm syndrome going on with like the entire scene. Um, but yeah, I just, I, um, yeah, so, so I, I knew it. Like when we were going to these contests and doing these things, like I, I knew what I was doing. You know? Like I knew that people were going to freak out. So yeah, but you didn't give a shit. Uh, yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, um, I mean, I, I did this thing with Ride Channel. Like, I, I talked a bit about it. Like, I was kind of an insecure person, and so the the, the negative attention kind of got to me. Again, had I been smarter or wiser or had a stronger like uh, emotional constitution, I, I could have just pulled out a lot more. But the negative attention would get get back get get to me. So rather than being able to harness it and use it for what it was worth, which was a lot. Um, it got to me, and it kind of eventually caught up to me. So, yeah, I've been there. I think anyone who like, um, it, I skateboarders are such strange creatures. We're like obsessive compulsive. We have like a lot of energy, and we got to direct it into things, and we like creating things, and we like destroying things, and like it's kind of the process of it, you know. Like, uh, but the shit we do, like the shit you did, that was like your creation, you know. So it's. People are so harsh sometimes. I could, I've been there where I'm like, fuck, you know, like sometimes I can take it and other times this is like too much, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I, I was in a different frame of mind back there too. So, you know, um, I wasn't the biggest, like toughest guy out in the scene, but, you know, I'm still four inches taller and 40 pounds heavier than the normal skateboarder. So, you know, we would brawl. I, I actually talked with Omar Hassan. Uh, the other day we were at some bands thing. He's like, dude, the first time I met you, you were like in some fight. You had a, had a leg brace on and you're out fighting a bunch of guys. And I was like, yeah. So, you know, I, I lost as many fights as I won, but, you know, and it was that kind of thing. If, if somebody was talking any static or anything, uh, it was it was dealt with. It's a lot different now, you know. Like, I'll go on some of these chat rooms and there'll be this whole thread on how, like, terrible Mike Vallely is. And I'm like, oh man, what are these guys thinking? Because if you did anything like that back then, you would see Mike Mullaly at the next event. Like, like he he, he would he, he would be there talking to you, yeah, <laughs> about what he had heard or yeah. So I'm like, oh, things must be different now. Maybe because of the internet, uh, he can't he can't fight 200 times a day. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if there was any vibe or anything, man, you 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 know, you would see other guys around it, and it would be uh, settled. Either you would talk it out, or sometimes you know it would come down uh, to some. You know, little cups or something. Shit happens, bro. Shit happens. I've seen some of the yeah. videos where people get down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grew up, I grew up in the I grew up in the projects in New Bedford too. So I'm used to like violence at a young age. I've seen like 
what could happen when people aren't happy and they're angry and poor. That's why I was asking that earlier. <laughs> yeah. Skating skaters always put themselves in that situation, like as street skaters and people that lurk around the cities and film stuff. It's like you end up in some hairy situations, you know? Yeah, and, and these guys, you know, the SF skaters, they would go, if there was a, a good hip over in the projects, man, they would go in there and film it. I'd be like, oh, you're crazy. And then and, uh, we would go to the dish up at Hunter's Point, you know, and I actually got mugged there uh, with a couple friends. We went up there kind of unknowingly, you know? Yeah, so dangerous yeah. up there? Yeah, so we, we got mugged. They took our boards and stuff, and, and one guy acted out violently on one of our crew. But we did the right thing. We just got out of there, you know, uh, yeah. and didn't did try to escalate. Yeah, I haven't been there in a while, but I, I first started getting flow from like the Lux and Thunder and Spitfire, and I went out there, and uh, they took us to the Hunter's Point, and we skated there, but I just remember, it was years and years ago, but I remember it was a little scary neighborhood, for sure, I, it might be nicer now, I don't know, but yeah, that place is pretty wild. SF has a certain level of griminess to it. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta watch it, there you go. Um, so you, you also had a shoe for Vans as well. How did that come to be? And like, did you sell some shoes? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So I was riding for Airwalk for the, at the time. Sick. And pro shoes were just coming out. And the team manager, I forget his last name, but his first name was Tim. And he was really supportive um, with what I was doing. And so he worked for Airwalk. And then the, there were these media guys at the time that were just untouchable. Um, it was uh, Dan Stewart and his uh, colleague, this guy, uh, Sinessa Iglesias. I forget how to say his last name. They called him Sin. He actually passed away about eight years ago. But So I already worked with all these like incredible media people. But so when I was writing for Airwalk and then started hanging out with Dan Stewart a little bit and this guy Sin, I thought I thought for sure I was like oh this thing's gonna gonna work out and uh, so I don't know if you remember Dan Stewart I do legendary for sure yeah so if you shot back then if you shot a photo with Dan you know your career was set for the next three years you know just one photo you know Damn. that's how it worked back then Sick. so uh, but I wound up not shooting with Dan not following up with this guy's sin and then um, the the team manager for Airwalk he says yeah. I, We'd like to do a pro shoe for you, but he, that's what he said. He says, we don't think it would sell. So it, it wasn't like a bad vibe or anything. It just it just had kind of gotten as far as it would go. And I think they were paying me like 100 bucks a month or whatever, which is cool. But it's like, it's it's not enough to really keep you going. Why, why didn't you go shoot with those guys? It just never, it just never gelled. Like, I went and met with Dan and we just talked and we, did, we didn't wind up shooting. And it just, it just didn't wind up progressing that whole airwalk route because Dan was shooting those airwalk ads at that time that, that were really progressive, like um, Jeremy, what is his last name? Jeremy Ray. Yeah, so when, when you like ollie from that, that one like water tower to the next, like that thing. Super iconic, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so Dan, and I, I was right there, man, but it just it just didn't come together. So I, I had gotten frustrated with airwalk that, uh, team manager had left and there was a new guy and I was actually looking around like for a different shoe sponsor. And, uh, so this is like a long story, but I'll try to make it like really short. So I had instigated this promotional boxing match with a, a snowboarder named Sean Palmer. Nice. How do you yeah. instigate that? I just called him on the phone. 
And I said, I said, hey, man, we got to box this out. And he's like, all right. And so I started setting up the match. I don't think he thought I was, like, serious about it. Did you guys have any prior beef? No, uh, not really. <laughs> Even better. Um, I just felt like calling him out. So uh, so this whole thing starts snowballing. And Vance, he was, he was uh, riding for Vance at, uh, as a snowboarder at the time. And so Vance, like, rented this venue, like, right behind the MGM Grand. And they, they rented a ring and stuff. Uh, and hired a referee, and uh, Sean wound up backing out of the fight like at the last minute after they had invested all this money into the promotion. So, I, and I was bummed because I was training, man. I, I knew it was like a good <laughs> shot, you know. So I, I, I had a professional boxing trainer, what? and I had been training for six months. So Sean backed out, and he gave some kind of excuse that was irreversible. Sounds like he made the right move, though. You were training. I don't, you never know. There's no way he's training, bro. There's no way he was training. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, um, I, I was getting ready to get on the plane, man. I was getting ready to fly to Vegas, and he backs out. So I, I had heard all the Vans personnel were were staying at the Tropicana Hotel in, in Vegas. So I just called the information, got the number to that hotel, and I called the hotel and I said, "Steve Van Dorn's room, please." I, I'd never met Steve before in my life. And so this guy answers the phone, and it's Steve Van Dorn. And I was like, I was like, hey, I, I, this is Simon. I ride for Airwalk, whatever. Nice but <laughs> I know you guys uh, invested a bunch of money into this thing. I, I want to help you um, um, make this event happen. And so what had happened was Sean said he had gotten in a street fight and that his hand was messed up to the point where he couldn't box. So I, I said, here, Steve, here's what I'll do. I'll come out there. And you get Sean Palmer down there, and I'll punch a cinder block to the point where it's agreed that my hand is as damaged as his hand, and then we can have the. And I wasn't trying to be tough; I was trying to reason this out. Yeah. And I said, "Here's get him down there, and then I'll punch the cinder block, and then you guys can inspect it, and we'll agree when the, when our hands are as equally damaged, and then we'll have a fight. That'll even it out." Did you? And he says, "No, we're not going to do that because that's going to scare him." <laughs> <laughs> he says he's probably already scared. That's why he backed up. Yeah. So I said. Hey, I said, well, here's the deal. I'll come out there, and you just find anyone. I don't care who it is. You find anyone, and I'll get in the ring, and I'll fight him. And he says, okay, that sounds good enough. So I, I came out there, and they had talked Mike Muir from the Suicidal Tendencies to, uh, uh, to taking the fight, to standing in the gap, you know. So, so Mike got in there um, on short notice, you know. Hey. And uh, it's, If you're going to fight, I mean. <laughs> yeah, so we did it, and then it, it saved the event. So I, I think uh, Steve and the Vance people were just thankful that I was able to, you know, s save them from. You know, they, they invested all that money. How was the matchup between you two? Well, it's on the, it's on the YouTube, man. You can check it out. I'm gonna put the link in the in this episode for sure, so they can watch it. All right, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I want to. It's. I, the story goes on even longer, but uh, yeah. Oh, so I wound up signing for Vance. Please, please continue with the story, though. Okay, so th there's more to it too that I'm forgetting. Okay. Um, there was a guy from the East Coast who was starting a uh, shoe company, and his name was Vinny. Ah, I Rafa? can't remember his name. What? Rafa. Yeah. Nice. And so he was starting this shoe company called Nice Shoes, and he had some backing. And they, they were halfway decent shoes. So actually, now that I think about it, I had already quit Airwalk, and I was in negotiation with nice shoes. I had Vinny talked into giving me, and they were going to give me a pro model shoe. Nice. And 
Um, so then Vans wound up interested in me. So as, as small time as that Penny Rafa shoe company would have been, it, it gave me leverage <laughs> when, uh, when Vans was interested. So I said, no, I'm, I'm developing a pro shoe right now. And they're like, no, that, that's fine. You can have a pro shoe with Vans. And then, uh, <laughs> and it was a total, like, um, it was a total ice tea thing. You know, ice tea went and signed his first record deal without ever having recorded like a, a song. Right. So it was one of those kind of things. And the CEO of Vans at the time, after the whole meeting and the contract negotiation, he said, I'll never forget it. He says, you can't skateboard, can you? And I said, he said, yeah. So it, the, the, the shoe negotiation actually had nothing to do with skateboarding. Oh, no, I take that back. I actually had a, I had a, I had, with Mike Ballard, I had just done a pro spotlight in Transworld. So I had the Transworld in my, in my pocket. Nice. So I just showed the CEO of Vance that. I said, yeah, here, I got a, I got like 18 pages in this Transworld. No, okay, that's fine. So I wound up making a three year deal with them. That's amazing. Your boxing match got you sponsored by Vans, basically. Yeah, pretty much. That's insane. That's an amazing way to pull it off, though. Fucking <laughs> only Simon Woodstock. <laughs> it was cool. It, it was fun. Um, yeah, I boxed a couple more times. I wish I could have kept going with it, but it's hard It's hard to keep up. Yeah. you like to work out now? Do you do anything, like, regularly? I just, like, I go in phases. I just, uh... I just walk around a lot. <laughs> Walking's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of walking. Running, walking, skating. Very hyperactive. Do you still have a lot of energy? Do you move around a bit? I'm slowing down a little bit. I'm 47 and a half, so I'm slowing down. Uh, how much are you skating these days? Not a, not a whole lot. Um, I did a part, like this thing here. A penny suit movie. Nice, yeah. That's the, that's the last for, full part that I did. That, that was a couple of years ago. Explain. But, uh, I, I started watching the Penny Suit video. Maybe break it down for the people listening what that project was about. Yeah, so um, I had a, a Penny Suit ad with Vans years ago. And then um, I wound up, I mean, how I got out of skateboarding or when I got out of skateboarding, I actually wound up, you know, coming to faith. So I, I became a Christian at the beginning of the year 2000. And I had gotten out of the whole scene. And uh, years later, I started skating again and, and getting into creative stuff. So I, I made like another version of the penny suit and stuff. And uh, so I still go out. So I do evangelism. And I go out with the penny gear. You can see the bike is right there. And let's talk to people, you know. And people will ask me questions about the penny suit. And they'll say, you know, like, like how heavy is that bike? And I'll say, Oh man, it's heavy metal. You know, it's like 82 pounds. And they go, Oh, no way. And I'll say, Well, it's nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, you know, in heaven for those who trust Jesus Christ for salvation. And so I use it for like preaching points. Yeah. Um, and then I talk about some philosophy. So my background is in uh, philosophy of religion. So people will ask, you know, like uh, about pennies, or I'll start talking about pennies. And, you know, like they have a circumference to them. And when something has a circumference, it's, it can be used as analogous to something that's eternal because because the, the east never touches the west you know and so I talk about the circumference of the penny it's kind of analogous to the eternality of god god existing as the uncaused cause and first principles and things like that so i'm talking i'm doing evangelism with it i'm talking about philosophy of religion but then in all that too there's like a, a skate part I actually went out and took the i have a penny board it's like right there yeah it's um, sick 
Yeah, and, and so I, I did some stuff with some rail combinations and things like that uh, down in San Diego, and that, that was the last time I, I filmed really with anybody. What made you, to digress again, but what made you leave skateboarding? I just, like, was, was over it, and it was really, it had a lot, not to be like Debbie Downer guy, but I had uh, I had nothing but opportunity, you know? Like, I could have kept going with Vans. Like, Vans is still, like, huge. Um, they're bigger than ever now, and Steve Van Dorn's, like, really cool. He, he's, like... He, he's the kind of guy that wants to err on the side of helping you out. He's, he's not like one of these normal kind of capitalist ladder climbers. He, he helps people out, you know? He just built, they just built a massive skate park in Boston where I live. It's like downtown. It's like next to the Boston Garden Stadium. And to me, it like almost brought a tear to my eye because people around here love their sports more than anything in the world. And I grew up just loving skateboarding. It was so small to see it grow to the point where there's a park next to a stadium in downtown Boston, like, is unbelievable for me. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would be uh, just as happy in the TD Gardens watching the Bruins play, but... Sick. Uh, <laughs> like, Zidane Charles, sick, man, but but that's a whole other thing. Um, and Lucic was my favorite, but he's with the Oilers now. Like, what are you doing? Okay, anyway. Um, so, so, but what I had done, man, I just got caught up, like, in that whole sort of rebellious side and uh, drinking and partying super hard, uh, and just making a lot of immoral decisions, which actually started to affect my mind. So I, I wasn't putting a whole lot of uh, cognitive application to what was going on. I just I just wanted to know where the next party was. I wanted to you know use my influence in very negative ways um, on the dark side of things, and that just caught up with me. So I, I really just for my own. Um, safety and the safety of others i just had to quit so just to, to get away from it and just get over all those addictions and all those bad uh, behavior patterns the bad psychology of it and the immorality and things like that because it was destroying me and and so i, I just had to, the best way to do it was just to tap out in in counseling they call it a radical amputation i just had to get away from it um, and that's why I, w I wasn't around. Like, I don't mind now. People look me up. I'll talk to them. I just went to this this party at Vance, you know, and hung out and talked with a bunch of people. Uh, but, yeah, I stayed away from it for a long time just to get healed and get repaired um, and, and get, get get back on track, you know. So that that's how it went down. Was there, a low, was there a low point that really made you go there? Like, what was the turning point? Were you just, like, you were – you lost? Did you lose something? Like – because I know a lot of people that live reckless lives and they're not in control of their lives and they get caught up in drug and alcohol. And then I, I don't like not all of them find God, you know, or like so yeah. like um so to find purpose in life. Like, what was there a moment where you're like, yeah, I just need to let it all go? Well, there was there was a couple. Of, so I was with bands and uh, it was probably in like 1998. I went on this like weird trip. Um, down to Venezuela, it was like a, it was a four-day trip or something down to Venezuela, and I went with Solomon Aga and Lance Mountain. Those were the two guys I went with. Legendary. Yeah, and Solomon Solomon goes in and out sort of of the church, but but Lance has always been pretty solid. I don't know if a lot of people know that because he he, he kind of just is chill about it in, in so far as the media goes. But if you talk to him, he's as as solid as a Christian as you'd ever want to meet. And uh, so we went on that trip. And he and Solomon were doing Bible studies in the hotel room. And I, I wanted to 
to see what the local action was. You know, I wanted to go down to the casino. And they're like, no, 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 they wouldn't let me. They're like, no, don't, don't, don't. Probably more that they didn't want to deal with somebody being drunk in the room or something, but also they were reaching out to me. And they're like, no, 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 because the, the distributor wanted to party us out. And they're like, no, no, do the Bible study with us. And so I just sat while they did their Bible study. And I, I was kind of half disgruntled about it, but I just dealt with it. And then uh, some other time I was up in Vancouver at that Slam City Jam or whatever. Those got pretty wild. Oh, yeah. And I was out like the night before, like Andy Roy and all these dudes, right? And uh, I woke up and I was so hungover, man. And I was just really bummed out. And I saw Lance like like just by himself. It, it was like in the morning before people were really showing up to, to practice or whatever. And I, I had heard that he was a Christian. So I went and talked to him and I was like, Lance, man, I feel terrible, man. I feel sick. Um, I, I just, I was out all last night, man. It just, I, we did all this stuff. It was really stupid. I'm hungover. And, and he said, he said, he said, Simon, that's what happens when you live your life for Satan. And I was like, what? He wasn't being like a jerk about it. He just said it, you know? He's like, he's like, that's what you can expect. If you live for Satan, that, that's what's going to happen to you. And I was like, All right, like, and that was the first time like my mind was really open to uh, some type of spiritual solution at, at that time in my life, and then yeah, and then all this other stuff happened where I wound up yeah getting getting saved for real, and and and, and it, it worked. It saved me from that lifestyle, um, and then and then now yeah, like like I'm pretty clear as a bell. I've been been uh, substance and addiction free for like eighteen years, you know, like. And then, and, and so now I have self control, so I, I can go to a dance party, and you know, there's there's not just one but four open bars, <laughs> you know, and I, I can just be like, no, you know what, no, I don't, you know, I don't need it. I can just talk to people. I don't need some kind of lubricant to to talk to people. You just go talk to people, and it's enjoyable, and it's like go around and, and be involved again a little bit, you know. Yeah. It's awesome. Did you ever feel any like hate towards you for being religious or also two parter? Did you ever feel weary of like joining like into a religion? Uh, I was cool, man. Like, like, cause, uh, e even just by faith, uh, uh, Christianity has always been at least, uh, relatively appealing to me. Uh, even, even back in those uh, days, people would re approach me with other religious beliefs and uh, just disrespectfully, like I, I, I never popped off on anybody or anything, but I, I just like, I don't know if that sounds like really consistent. I, it, that doesn't sound like like something that makes a whole lot of sense. But, but Christianity uh, made a good amount of sense to me. And uh, so, but 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 yeah, like uh, I, I'm actually on a, a discussion thread on, on Slap Magazine right now. And it's it's me and my friend Jimmy Branch is now helping me out. And so it's us against all of slap <laughs> and uh and, and that place is just notoriously mean anyway like you can go post a, an opinion on some band you like and everyone rips you right so oh i'm on it's already that kind of environment <laughs> um but if you go on there we're just giving soft answers and we're giving rational answers and, and people are either dropping the debate because they're, they're not able to respond to uh, the, the the counter challenges um, or they're, they're softening up a bit. Like, I'll go, look, man, I can talk to you, but you don't need to curse me out. You don't need to rant. Just just come at me with some logic or some type of history or accurate science or something 
so I can have a discussion with you. Um, and then, so some of the guys are cooling off and they're actually talking to us and stuff. So it's, it's going pretty good. The, the thread is almost up to 10,000 views. Oh, that's um, but yeah, to answer your question, if you want to go on there, like, like people will just go on there and they'll just cuss me out. You know, I, I knew that going on, so I don't take offense to it, but it's like, yeah, how, how can you talk to somebody like that? Yeah, I've gone, I've gone on there and uh, posted stuff and told them it was me, and they were ruthless, and it was amazing. The th- the problem is that like sometimes funny factor wins for me. Like I, even if it's someone making fun of me, I just laugh because I'm like, uh, I can see that too, you know? Like, uh, that's where I guess the devil's in the details, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I the way I grew up, I like, um, I never became religious, but religion always helped me out, like with uh, with my family and giving a shelter and even food at times and just being empathetic and understanding people from the church. My father had me go to church at a young age and I met a lot of awesome people, you know? And then as I got older, I, um, I would go into churches just years later just to like check it out and see what the vibe was and who, who was in there. I never like was comfortable with the idea of signing up for one religion or anything like that. Um, but I definitely like the idea of uh, finding purpose in life and uh, thinking that life's bigger than you. You're, you know, getting beyond the ego and being self-centered and being more self-aware of um, something bigger than ourselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good thing. And then it's just that's that's what I encourage people is, you know, there there is, especially in this information saturated era, you know, there's a smorgasbord of ideas out there. And uh you know, we, we talk about this. I, I teach at a school. I teach at a Bible college, and we we talk about philosophy a lot. And it's like, you know, you know, not not everything can be equally true. You know, yeah, because if now, that's the case, now then, nowadays then, you can't even tell what is true, not what's equally true. Like, not even degree degrees of it. You can't even. They're making like the world's flat, Simon. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like who knows? Who fucking knows? <laughs> well, the thing, you know, this is the thing is. Uh, Mathematicians uh, years ago figured out in the pre-Socratic times that the Earth is is round. Now, this is an important discussion. So science, right? I agree. What's that? It's science, right? They just, just the science adds up, right? And even in pre-Socratic times, what they would do was they would look at um, they would do two things. So they could check the solar eclipses, and I'm sorry, the lunar eclipses, and there were no edges on the eclipses. The, the eclipse was always spherical, so they knew. And then there was a way, too. There was a mathematician in the pre-Socratic era that actually um, um, used two sort of like a sundial type of poles at different locations in Egypt. And he, he marked them off, and he noticed the difference in, in shadow at the two different locations. So he figured out that the Earth was spherical and actually over 2,000 years ago was able to almost accurately estimate the, uh, the circumference of the earth. So, so that even, um, has been sort of sorted out the, I mean, in pre-Socratic times, so over thousands of years ago, the, the big issue was the, the, uh, the geocentric view of the solar system that the solar, the, the planets revolved around the earth. Um, but that, you think of it now, you say, oh, that's stupid. Well, well no, that's how limited people, uh, scientists before Copernicus and Galileo were. They had very limited instrumentation, you know. So they're doing math, and they could actually, there were, there were about five planets, four or five planets at that time before the, the telescope that, that were noticeable. And so they're, they're mathematically analyzing planetary motion, and they, they, they figured out that there was a solar system and that it was revolving around something. And they just thought it was the Earth at the time. And then 
with Copernicus and Galileo and that revolution, they had instruments enough to be able to figure out that it, it, it all um, orbited the sun. And then that finally, the, the church was hesitant for that uh, revelation because of their, their understanding of the Bible and the science of the day. But then it eventually properly influenced the church. So, so everybody's been on board with around a spherical Earth, and then it, it, it hasn't been, you know, that difficult as far as uh, you know the uh, astronomy of it and whatnot. It's, it's, it's sorted itself out. I think it's just random chaos. People running around, just throwing uh, pennies in the machine, the engine of the airplane. You know, like I don't think they they might just be trolling people by doing all that. I don't know. <laughs> Well, with, with slap uh, or uh, any of those things, the, the the vibe is just it's it's mean spirited by nature. So my, my friend and I, we know that, so we don't we don't take it personal, and then and then we just we try not to to sink to that ourselves. And then um, it, it, I think it's been really informative. So we we've had you know maybe thirty five or more other people post. But then there's there's almost ten thousand views of the thing, so a lot of people are interested and they're coming and they're looking at what we're saying. And I think those might be the silent majority that are even afraid to post because they get ripped on and stuff like that. So it's nice yeah. to have a document of uh, thoughts and ideas. It's actually in written form too, you know. Like people, that'll be on the as long as we keep civilization going, that'll be out there as a paper trail. Like you can come upon that thread and just that's kind of why I like the podcast is we can. Uh, as long as it keeps going, it'll be out there. People can find it and stumble upon like episode after episode or page after page of a blog or something. Yeah, and and I think what it's 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 for is is I want to help people because because there's a lot of insanity going on right now, you know, and a lot of it is because all these lines have been blurred. So so people and I understand why they they want to uh, be hesitant to say that uh, Christianity is true and all other religions are false. Or that Islam is true and that all other religions are false or Judaism and all that. And, and I understand the hesitation for that. But the problem is when you get so far away from it, then you, you, you have no dividing lines of, of any sort. And, you know, you can run around and, and tell people, you know, uh, oh, hey, I'm a seven foot tall Chinese woman, you know, and they, they can't disagree with you. They, they can't point out the obvious that you're not. Uh, and, and so that's kind of where it's at now. And so that that's a level of insanity. And it's out of this fear and insecurity to tell anybody that they're wrong, um, which there's nothing wrong with telling somebody they're wrong. You know, if you're doing it uh, with respect, that's how you have a discussion about anything. You know, it's like if, if I'm wrong about something, I want somebody to tell me. You know, I'm the kind of guy that wants to, to know if I have a booger in my nose, you know. Yeah. And I think that other philosophy is that philosophy, like, don't tell the person they have a booger in their nose. And, and it, it, it's worse, you know. Yeah. So, okay. I, I I totally agree. Um, freedom of speech is super important, and like we got to be able to express ourselves, whether it's negative or positive, you know, because those are realities in life that we have to deal with, you know. I think a lot of people are just trying to express themselves open and honestly, and we have this new technology, and people don't might not have real experience with communication and humans, and like there's a lot yeah. of repression and repent feelings and angriness, and uh, and there's a lot of evil shit that happened by people in power from the church and from the government and from ourselves included as individuals. We're in we're in America, it's one of the most prosperous nations, and it got that way by being fucking the most. You could do whatever you want, you know, like. <laughs> it, I was like, my family is never really the winner of a capitalist society in, in the ethics of it, you know? So, um, yeah. but yeah, it's crazy world for sure. And it goes on, you know, like 
all the oil stuff and wars and just always got always got bummed out and I never really voted or like looked at politics or the machine because I always was like didn't feel like um the people in power ever helped us you know like yeah as I get older I see it a little bit differently but I'm still weary yeah <laughs> I'm well, just weary because people sorry but pe the thing that makes me weary is people with power don't like want to let it go and a lot of this is dragging heels like the church has done that with certain beliefs they've dragged their heels and i get it's for caution but same with the government and the people that own these oil factories and these fucking refineries and it's like how long does the truth have to keep coming at you and be on you know before you're like all right we gotta like make a change you know like yeah it's insane so that's where people come from you know it's like you don't know what the truth is because man or humanity is fucking a little crazy and can is can be a devil and an angel at sometimes you know it's yeah. like we're trying to balance it out i think hopefully all this conversation and connecting with one another we can be more empathetic the church is good for that though they've i've always found like most people that go to church are uh, pretty understanding and willing to listen which was awesome yeah, and you get uh, a, a, it's a statistic i think is factual I had seen uh, multiple reports that after uh, Hurricane Harvey in Texas, that the church outdid FEMA as far as relief went, at least in those early stages, you know. So, and that's what it's about. And if you, that's what's uh, unique about Jesus, and and, and even uh, the Old Testament as well. If you look at the feast of Israel and the the feast of uh, Pentecost, uh, is it is there's a time of harvest and it's stipulated by God for those harvesting to leave the corners of their field for those that don't have anything to come across and, and glean. So there's social programs in the Old Testament. And Jesus, we were just talking about this in class today. Um, you know, Jesus went and spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, and, and she was a disenfranchised individual. Socially, the Samaritans were looked down upon um, because they were half Jewish, you know. And so they were kind of caught in the middle there. Uh, and so she... Jesus went out of his way to go talk to this Samaritan woman and reach out to her. And uh, there were very few. Um, he even said it, it's it's harder uh, for a rich man to enter into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You know, so uh, people, rich people can get caught up in power and wealth and things like that. And it can be distracting. Um, so and the gospel's for everybody, but it, it's certainly for, uh, and we go out, we do homeless uh, outreach and stuff. And we'll talk to people. They have a lot of needs, and we try to do what we can to meet them. And that, that's just in the name of the gospel, in the name of Christ, that we do it, you know? I, I feel like a lot of lost people are caught up in uh, the emotion of life because of bad things. Like, they're damaged. Like, my mom's a prime example of someone like that. Like, she was born into this world as, like, a little girl who had all the potential in the world, and then bad things happened to her, and then she couldn't get over them. So yeah. her development stopped, and... and when that happened, and she also created life, you know, she had five kids with three different men and, uh, and, uh, she never got over the pain of, uh, being molested as a child. So I seen that, that's like my, that's who I grew up with and things would constantly fall apart. And I was like, she just doesn't even have a chance. Like I almost wanted her to find Christ and God. I was like, you need to be around just anyone who's like trying, you know, to figure it out and be happy. Cause she was on a broken pattern that just would not stop. You know, and until her dying day, she got a little better and then, uh, but still couldn't grapple with it. Life was so scary and intimidating because it can be, you know, it, for some people that shit, like demons and evilness happens, you know? Yeah. It's gnarly. And those, those are like some of the counseling situations we get in that, 
that's usually why somebody's got some problems is, is something really bad happened to them and or they made a mistake and did something really bad to somebody else. Ooh, yeah, and, and then like kind of a culmination of that just snowballing from that point. So the, that, that's, that's the counseling thing is to get back to that, that root instance of what happened and then sort of rewinding and, and unpacking and getting through all those emotional hurts and pains and things like that. And then uh, it, it, all, it all has to do with sin. Um, somebody's either sinning themselves or being sinned against. And then if you act out in anger and then you drink to get over the anger and stuff, it starts snow, you know, just becoming a big mountain. Cain and so that, that's what I had to work through. And that's what we counsel people with. And that, that, that's where I think the gospel is effective because you, you, you start to understand forgiveness. You start to understand that you're forgiven. And then it enables you to be able to forgive those, those hard cases that otherwise would not seem forgivable. And that gets rid of the bitterness and the anger and can help you get rid of the addictions and things like that. So um, That's yeah, there's a deeper counseling aspect to it. There's that story, Cain and Abel, that kind of touched on uh, that, right? I was listening to something recently, and they were bringing up Cain and Abel and about how, was it Cain that couldn't get over the fact that he kept messing up? Or do I have that wrong? Yeah, Cain uh, was essentially uh, jealous of Abel, and he, he wound up killing Abel. And it was um, it was his own fault, though, right? Because he wasn't he was doing destructive things and not realizing it, and he was jealous of his brother, right? But my my recollection of the passage there is that he had offered a, a sacrifice that to the Lord that was uh, not accepted by God for some reason, which could have been like um, just out of bad motive or something. And, and the Lord uh, accepted Abel's sacrifice. So Cain was like really jealous about that and wound up uh, killing Abel. Yeah. So, um, and then God even showed grace on, on Abel. God let Abel uh, live and then made some stipulations of why he, he shouldn't be killed. Um, so yeah, you have that. And if you read the Old Testament, that's, that's what's a, a good um, evidence actually for the Bible, because you have all those sort of sorted uh conflicts and discrepancies and things you can tell somebody didn't sit down like some of this uh roman folklore and make the leaders just seem so utterly fantastic you know <laughs> it's got these real stories you know david king david you know fell into adultery and he essentially um was responsible for the death of his main military leader and that's all recorded you know and, and it's some other fantastic uh even somewhat historical account that's mythologized would, would make him seem like this great guy that never did anything wrong, you know? Uh, so I, I think that's a good internal evidence for the Bible. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree that man does not have it figured out and that they can be fucking evil as shit and they could be as glorious as Jesus, you know, on some levels, maybe not all the time, but I believe the experience has heights and lows that are told in those stories, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Let me go through this real quick. So you did end up sending, uh, selling some shoes with Vans, which is pretty sick opportunity, man. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was good, and that, I would have liked to stay around and stayed with them, but it didn't work out. But it's alright. <laughs> yeah. I like some of the boards. Like, uh, I was watching online recently. I remember when I was younger, dude. Did you did you ever juggle knives? No, that was this guy, uh, Laban. Oh, Laban uh, was the one who juggled it. Laban did, did that stuff as well, eh? Yeah, and Laban honestly was a better skateboarder than I was. Laban, Laban was like, a, he, he could have contended with anybody else at the time as far as like straightforward skateboarding went. Um, but he's just unique. He's just an artistic individual. So uh, he would show up. I always loved seeing him around. Um, 
he would show up like with weird dyed hair when nobody's doing it, things like that. And uh, but but he, he you know you look at his video parts; they're just as good uh, as any others. And then he would do these. He he did he he had an interest in like juggling and magic and stuff like that. Um, not not like creepy dark magic, just just tricks and things. And so he would make these videos like that would incorporate skateboarding and juggling and stuff. I thought they were pretty cool. I had a part in both of them. Um, the the mainstream guys they they thought it was kind of kooky, and and I, I understand why, but I I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I'm not like super into juggling or anything, so I was like, what, what these extreme jugglers? You know, I was like, whatever. But it, it was Layman's thing, and it, it was alright. Worked for him. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny that you would think that because you were like on a skimboard. Like <laughs> that part was sick, though. Um, fuck, what was that part? Uh, Need for Speed was it? Yeah, Crasher video, right? Yeah, yeah, that was a fun thing. I did that with like Bryce Knights and some other guys in the. Yeah, there there was things like uh, there was things that would happen. I thought were like kooky. Were you <laughs> so, were you looking at it like? Because I think the difference is you were looking at it like, what can I do to get attention to to do this? You know, like what can I push the boundaries and however. And where other people are looking at it like, how do I? They're building video parts and trying to have like a, I don't know what to call it. It's different. They're a normal path. Did you ever feel like uh, you fit in with the skateboard industry at all? Oh yeah, like uh, behind the scenes, man. I would I would have a a conversation with Rick Howard. Uh, I had talked with Spike Jones. He he wanted to do. I had plenty of opportunities on the table when I bounced out. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like uh, nobody really knows this. I've talked about it before, but uh, Rick Howard and Spike they wanted to get me into one of the girl videos somehow, like doing a bit part or something. Yeah. So so it. It wasn't as as cut and dry as people thought. I, th I think people just just thought some clicks were kind of difficult and hard to like the like the EMB thing was kind of weird. Um, but even then, like some of the guys were cool, like like James Kelch and these guys. They they were cool dudes. Yeah. But you know, some things were just so clicky that it was like they were just by default anti anything that was not them. So that was kind of the EMB guys for a while. Um. And maybe some others, but it's just like, like, who cares? Yeah. And then you got, like, 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 Gons, he wasn't like one of those EMB guys, and then he would just like, ollie that Gons ollie, or, or kickflip it, you know, so he would just blow people away with his skateboarding, and, and nobody could say anything, you know, against that, they, they fully accepted him, and he's, he's as, in, in, in a positive sense of the term, he's, he's as weird as anybody else, he's so, <laughs> and he was always in with those guys, you know, he's, he's been a deluxe guy, you know, from, from day one, I think, well, for a long time. Yeah, well, that's good. It's good to know you didn't feel like alienated because usually, sometimes if you're completely different people, there's there's definitely clicks, you know. Like I've seen that in the past with skateboarding. It went it went all handrails for a long time because Jamie Thomas. It was like skateboarding industry changes so quick. It's it's strange by the board sizes too. Like I, when I started, I wrote a seven five, and now I can't even find them. Yeah, the trends were hard to keep up with then. I, I don't. I can't even imagine it now. Um, such a daily thing, um, and yeah, I mean, we, my friends and I, we would just go to these contests and stuff later, and it just seemed like it almost seemed like a football, like a basketball game or something. <laughs> yeah, and I just like oh, this is kind of kind of stupid. So we would just do things to to rile people up, mix things up a little bit. Yeah, that's where I feel like people might talk shit because like it seems like a like you'd be hard to compete with. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I think, and then uh, during that 
era, like I, I don't think I ever made the cut in a contest. Like, like, uh, yeah. So we would just go out and, and do our runs in the preliminaries, and that, that was like the thing, you know. So they, they wouldn't even score it well. I, I, I can't remember ever making a cut in a contest or something, doing any of that stuff. But at that point, like, we just didn't care, you know. Yeah. We yeah. just go out and, and and try to mix the thing up, and then and then just do whatever. Um. Yeah. So what are you up to nowadays? Well, yes, now I I teach at a Bible college, and I'm actually a librarian at a Bible, I I do the library, and uh, I teach here, teach like religious philosophy at Chapel Bible College, and and actually, so I have have four degrees now, I have two undergraduate degrees, two graduate degrees in like religious philosophy, and then I'm, I'm getting ready, I just got married, I got married earlier this year. Congrats. To a, a Ugandan a citizen, she's in the, the legal process of immigrating to the United States right now. Well, getting her green card. Nice. And then uh, I'm getting ready to do a, a, combi- a combination degree. It's an MA and PhD in, in archaeology and biblical history. Wow. Yeah. So just doing that it keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> so, I play the guitar, so I play the guitar as much as I can. Um, probably about six or eight hours a week. That's sick. Can you sing? Not well. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> that one seems terrifying to do. <laughs> I was going to look into it. Um, I was going to uh, try to take some vocal lessons and stuff, but I'm, I'm going to be doing this uh, degree program. It's going to take a lot of my time, so I'm going to barely have time for guitar. Do you enjoy studying? Yeah, I do. You can kind of see I got the library over there. Yeah. That's my own library. I do. I like to. I read the Bible every day and then. I read, uh, let's see, so here I have, this is a book on, uh, like, cosmology and physics, universe by design. Um, here's, like, um, an archaeology DVD. Nice. This is a book, the last book I read, actually, is um, by a guy who's probably a stone's throw away from me right now. It's uh, Noam Chomsky's um, What Kind of Creatures Are We? Yeah, and uh, I read through it. Um, actually, uh, from from a critical uh, standpoint, and I'm I'm trying to uh, summarize his arguments. And and uh, there are there are certainly some strengths. He's a brilliant individual, um, but there's almost no conclusion at the end. Like, <laughs> so uh, I think people just kind of swoon because he's a really smart guy from MIT. Yeah, that um, that happens. Things go viral just because someone gets excited and then they just spread it around like it's gospel. Yeah, yeah. So he's 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 got a lot of uh, knowledge in in linguistics and things, but um, yeah, I, I, he, I'm gonna write him a re- response when I can, hopefully before the uh, end of the year. And then yeah, just some other stuff, some stuff on Christian philosophy. Um, I got the Bible here. Nice. When um, you re- when you read the Bible, just forgive me for asking, but like when you read it, do you uh, how much do you read? Do you read like um, do you just try to go through as much as, do you have something in mind usually, a passage, or where do you start? So right now, it, so it just depends. So um, several months ago, I just started reading it from cover to cover again. So I, I'm, I'm, I've made it through the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and then now I'm about halfway through the book of Joshua. So I just read two chapters a day. Um, I just want to, I'm, I'm trying to go from Genesis to Revelation. I don't care how long it takes. I do about two chapters a day. And uh, just just getting that history of Israel now and, and 
uh, re- refreshed on it. And then uh, my wife and I, we read the Proverbs. We, we, we read one proverb aloud uh, before we go to bed. And, and then other than that, like, you know, so I teach here at a, at a Bible college, you know, so I went through, my, my course guide is right here. So there's, you know, there's Bible references all throughout. We talked about the resurrection of Jesus today. And, you know, so First Corinthians 15, that's the chapter that talks about the resurrection and then a lot of other related scriptures from Romans and the Gospels and things like that. So, yeah, we're, we're referencing it a lot in the classes. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Um, so the thing about, for me, with religion was like the stories, you know, like, do you believe everything so literally or do you break it down into like some of these might just be stories of, like they're not like never happen, you know. Like there's stuff in there that I, is insane to me. <laughs> sure. No. So uh, no, it's a good discussion to have. So all right. Um, the, the the proper way to explain it, at least in so far as my understanding is, is the best way to read the Bible is to take a plain reading of it. And I say plain rather than literal because the Bible does use different genres of language. It uses there's books of poetry, you know. So. The Psalms are technically the genre of poetry, but there's also history. So those 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 uh, books that I just read through, those are the the history of, of early Israel. You know, it's the history of creation and it's the history of early Israel. So it's, it's speaking of a literal Egypt. It's speaking of a literal Pharaoh. It's speaking of a literal Moses and things like that. Um, but yeah, when it's when it's saying certain things like you know, um, God is our shield. It doesn't mean God is a metal shield. It means that he has the characteristic of being able to protect people, things like that. So um, you, you do a plain reading, and, and if, if something's just making sense uh, literally or plainly, you take it in that sense. If, if something's seeming, especially if you're reading the book of Revelation, if, if there's something that just seems really figurative, there is a lot of figurative language in Revelation, but it usually has a direct relation to something that was uh, spoken of in the Old Testament. That was a literal thing. So... You know, it's, it's a matter of connecting that. Um, it just depends, like, it has to do with a person's view of miracles. If, if you believe that miracles are possible and or, you know, you believe that Genesis 1-1 is true, that God created the heavens and the earth, then it's not fantastic, really, when you hear of a parting of a Red Sea or Jonah being in the belly of a big fish for three days, a great, great fish. Uh or of Jesus raising from the dead. So if, if somebody has a predisposition against miracles, then I can see a lot of it seeming like nonsense. But if you're open to miracles, um, and that just goes from, if you, if you take Genesis 1 as, as literal, God created the, the universe. If God created the universe out of nothing, then you can't top that miracle. <laughs> and then he has sovereign control over the universe and ability to uh, super intervene and suspend natural laws and, and part a sea, raise the sun from the dead, and things like that. So that's, in my understanding, that's what really what it boils down to. So it seems like it could take a whole lifetime just to figure that with that one out. Like I feel like most people aren't are so caught up in everything else that um, they they don't even think about it like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but but I mean, like to decide to to go, God is real versus I'm just born into this world, and you know, like that's what I was asking a lot about how you got there and what the what the moment was i was open to the idea of god at a young age just because i experienced a lot of hardship so i was like hoping like 
things would get better and that there is something better at, than the moment, you know, these moments that we're, we're stuck in or in, you know? Um, I'm always curious how people find it. Cause it seems like you almost have to give in to fucking admit there's something, a God, you know? And then what the atrocity of what some of the stuff that happens among men that are in the church, I guess it's just humans in general have a uh, capacity for evil, you know? And some of them have been in the church too, you know? It scares people. You hear these stories and, or people connected to like strange things that have happened in war too. War's one that goes on now too. And that's, was part of the church as well, you know? Like, I don't know. It's, it's all fucking overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it depends, you know? And so, like, um, now I'm not Roman Catholic, you know? Yeah. So, a lot of the sordid history comes out of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but, you know, Protestant churches uh, haven't been, been free from, uh, you know, evil things happening within their ranks and things like that. So, really, you know, uh, humans are humans. And, the humans who believe in God and profess to do, be Christians uh, should be making an effort to be walking in faith and be doing better, but they still fall into evil things and, and things like that. And with uh, with biblical Christianity, there's an aspect of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, in my understanding, is the means to be able to, to deal with any of these kind of things. So it, whether it's in the church or the church dealing with something outside of the church, that's a conflict or whatever, the Holy Spirit can come and uh, keep people from uh, unnecessary violence, unnecessary acting out, self-control, um, uh, be able to, to talk things out, to reason things out, rather than just going on some type of evil rage or something like that. So the, the, the means is there through the Bible to be able to um, self-improve, for lack of a better term, and to be able to improve a social situation. And I think it's, it's, it's the sin and fallen man that just messes uh, things up, whether it's in the church or outside of the church or whatever. So that, that's just how I understand it. That, that, that helps me with it. Yeah. My, my, my connection and my accountability is with God, you know, and, and I have to, to watch what I do. But if I do something wrong to somebody else, um, it, it obviously hurts them, and I need to come to reconciliation or, or to restore and to apologize things. But I, I did that before God, man. I, I got answered uh, to God, and that's what like keeps me in check. And I don't go around socking people up and doing things I used to do, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I think that's it, Simon. I think you killed it, man. <laughs> All right. Well, no, thanks for this. And I would just say, you know, just to consider it. Like, I had. I don't know if you know the the BMX guy, uh, um, Dennis McCoy. Um. Yeah, so he was at the Vance thing, and we were talking about religion, and I said, look, Dennis, 10 out of 10 people die. It's the ultimate statistic. And that, that's something to consider. You know, we're, we're here on this earth for, for a short amount of time comparatively when you think about eternity, you know. And that's why I think it's important to talk about these religious matters and important to consider Christ because, you know, if, if, if sin is, is, is real, which we see everywhere, and God is righteous and he's holy and he's going to judge sin, uh, there's going to be consequences for unbelief. And so that's why it's good to consider Jesus Christ and to, you know, repent, receive him as Lord and Savior, um, because you're, you're dead a lot longer than you're alive. And, you know, I want to see you, I want to see anybody I know and anybody I love or I'm getting to know and, and, and getting to love brotherly uh, to be considering that. And I want to see them in heaven. I don't want to see any a judgment be exacted on people. So that, that's why we're doing what we're doing with evangelism and things. So something to consider. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I, I definitely think people should consider being like self-empowered, like realizing their own capacity for good and evil that is inside of them, you know, like that's first a powerful move. If you can realize you can be super bad or super evil, or you could realize you could be a Jesus type character, then you'll actually feel like you're empowered. And then you'll be, I hope you'll be more cautious instead of take advantage of that and try to realize you could have a negative influence on someone or a positive, you know, like that young people come into the world and they have, they don't have, a lot of people are overworked and their kids are left to themselves and the internet and like, you know, people are learning more and more with all this technology that they're empowered and that they have influence. They're testing it out online all the time, you know? So you can build these, uh, these, um, prisons by design, you know, we tend to people left to our own devices, I guess. But yeah, I think anything that helps uh, people think about something beyond themselves is fucking good. So thank you for sharing and opening up, Simon. And You've done a lot of cool, sick, sick ass shit in skateboarding. And anybody listening, you should just type his name in and read the Big Brother interviews and watch all the videos. And you put on a hell of a show, bud. God bless you, man. Yep. Thank you, Simon. All right. See ya. Bye.